poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Welcome, 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 my friend, to another episode of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Coach Brad Wilson. And today's guest on the podcast is a winner of a WSOP gold bracelet, a nationally syndicated poker columnist, and is the Poker News USA executive editor, Chad Holloway. If there's a major poker event or news story anywhere in the world, you can be pretty sure Chad has covered it. His career in the world of poker as a writer, editor, and player now spans nearly 15 years. And as you're about to learn, Chad's foray into the world of cards began pretty normally while he was schooling it up at Tulane University. But instead of immersing himself in the world of poker through daily grinding on the green felt, Instead, he integrated the world of poker into his life through his writing, creativity, and genuine love of the game. Today, you're going to learn all about Chad's origin story in the world of poker, how he felt when he won his WSOP gold bracelet, and near the end of the episode about an incredible project he's working on that involves a former WSOP main event champ and nosebleed regular who has mysteriously fallen off the grid over the last couple of decades. Being a human being who loves all things poker history and lore, you won't be surprised to learn that our discussion into Chad's passion project went on at least 30 minutes after the recording stopped. So now, without any further ado, I bring to you a man who routinely chases poker greatness and does everything in his power to spread his love of this beautiful game far and wide. Chad Holloway. Chad, good morning, sir. Welcome to Chasing Poker Greatness. How are you doing? I am doing well. Thank you for asking and for having me on. I have been a longtime listener and appreciate everything you've done. So it's an honor for me to to join you and, and chat a little bit about poker. Yeah, it's my pleasure. My pleasure. And yeah, typically just start out, you know, let's dive deep into how you entered the poker world. Like, what does your journey into poker look like? My poker origin story, so yeah. to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it goes back quite a ways. Um, I actually don't remember when I first learned poker. I just remember I always played card games growing up as a kid. And my earliest poker memory is uh, me and my friends, we grew up in a small town in Wisconsin with about 500 people. We had one restaurant. And this is back probably around 1990, give or take, when I was about eight years old. Um, During the summers when there was no school in the small town, every day we would go to this restaurant and order a plate of French fries. I remember it cost $1.26 and the cook would just give us this mountain of fries on a plate and we would sit for hours in the booth playing a five-card draw poker for French fries. We were emptying French fries as, (laughs) as that. And then it just grew from there. We, um, you know, graduated to putting up like football cards is something we would play for. And then I think we even did video games a few times. And as we got into our teenage years, um, you know, some people started smoking, so they would use cigarettes. Those of us who didn't smoke like myself, we would use quarters. Um, and I just kept it rolling. And it was around 2002, right? Maker boom. 
Um, my cousin, who also loved poker, recorded Robert Varconi's ESPN victory. And we were we used that ESPN VHS tape combined with rounders, watching rounders, to piece together what No Limit Hold'em was and how it was played. And that's, you know, when we switch, shifted from five-card draw to No Limit Hold'em. And, you know, kind of from there, I got the, the moneymaker boom era kind of hook set in me. And, and um, so yeah, I've been playing forever. Um, and then, of course, you know, at one point transitioned over to the media side of things. Yeah. How old were you in 2002 when you started diving, you know, deep into No Limit Hold'em? Sure. So I, w- I was born in 82. So I guess that would have made me right around 19 or 20 because uh, I was born in, in December. I've always kind of regretted that I wasn't taking the game a little more serious uh, in 2003. You know, I, I would have been in 2003, 2004 uh, is when I would have turned 21. I would have been eligible for the World Series of Poker. I could have you know, been in the thick of things, but I was, you know, fresh out of um, kind of not fresh out of high school, I guess a few years removed, but wasn't doing much in life, um, was going to college, but didn't have any money. So, you know, getting to the World Series was kind of a pipe dream. And that actually wouldn't happen until six years later in 2009 was my first uh, foray over to to Vegas for the World Series of Poker. I got an internship with Bluff Magazine and that uh, you know ultimately has changed my life. So. Yeah, uh, good old Bluff Magazine. So, you, you know, in 2003, you said you were going to school. What, what were you going to school for? Like, what, what was your aspiration as it related to, to your career? Honestly, I didn't have much of any. Um, I was never, you know, in high school, I was never the, the sort to apply myself. I just, I, I got fine grades. I just never went there. But my friends would joke I was on the every other day plan because, you know, a school week is Monday through Friday. And from freshman year to junior, uh, to senior year, I maybe went five full weeks in that entire four-year span. I just missed a lot of school, skipped a lot of school. Um, so when I graduated, I really didn't know what I was going to do. And one of my friends was going to college at a two-year campus to get his associate's degree. And I kind of thought to myself, well, if he can do it, I can do it. And so I followed in his footsteps and um, got my associate's degree. And it just, it, w- it was one thing led to another, like, okay, you're getting your associate's degree what's next? I guess I'll transfer to the four-year campus and get my bachelor's degree. And I was always kind of um, knowledgeable in history. So that's what I majored in. And when that was nearing its end, it's like, all right, what do you do with the the history degree? Law school. All right. That sounds like the next logical step. So let's go to law school. And so I went to law school at Tulane in New Orleans um, for about a year. This was in 2007. And it was really then where I started to kind of take poker more serious. I'd been playing, you know, through college, but only as a hobby, never to make a living, free games and that sort of thing. But when I went to New Orleans, Harris Casino was right there, downtown by Bourbon Street. And so I remember the second day I was there, I rode my bike down there and started playing there. And again, this was 2007. So back then, it wasn't, if you knew what you were doing, it wasn't really a matter of if you were going to win, it was how much you were going to win. It really was a different game. And I remember I set out with this goal. I had $400 left over from student loans. And my goal was to take this $400, play really cautiously, really patient, really tight, and grind it up to $1,200 over the course of a few months so that I could buy a new flat screen TV. You know, back in 2007, the flat screens were, were very expensive. So I had this plan to just really play patient. Well, the first day, that first weekend I was there, I won like 1600 bucks. And so that really set the hook hard. And I ended up spending a lot more time at the casino than I should have, not as much time 
you know, studying. And then after a year of law school, just kind of realized this isn't for me and um, moved back to Wisconsin, which is where I'm from. And not that was I'm not knowing what I'm doing with my life at that point. Really, I dropped out of law school. Um, poker was not something I really thought I could do as a living, especially in Wisconsin. We only have tribal casinos. Um, and so I had been uh, good at writing for a while. I'd written my way onto a newsletter at law school, which was uncommon for first year law students. And I decided to try to combine my talent for writing and my passion for poker. And I found a website called Predictum. It was primarily a sports betting website uh, that we're looking to expand into the poker market. You know, this is 2008. Poker was really hot. And so I started doing some articles for them, started contributing free articles for Pro, uh, Poker Pro Magazine and just really putting in my dues, so to speak, and building up a little bit of a portfolio. So when 2009 rolled around, that's when I saw Bluff Magazine was looking for interns. So I applied. I was fortunate enough, enough to, to get accepted. But back then, you know, it was an internship. They paid very little. Really, what they paid just covered the housing and that it would take to get out there. So I remember vividly, I took a $3,000 loan out from the bank. I drove my vehicle from Wisconsin out there and worked my first World Series of Poker. And it was more of a pipe dream at the time. I was just a fanboy. My thinking was, I'm going to go out, I'm going to meet all these players, I'm going to experience the World Series of Poker. If I'm lucky, I'll get, get to play in maybe um, a tournament or two, um, and then I'll come back home and figure out what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. And so that's kind of what it was, is I went out there, did my thing, had a blast. Uh, I've got photos from back then with you know, Doyle Brunson and, and uh, Devilfish Elliott and all my favorite poker players at the time. And I came back to Wisconsin and was like, all right, it's time to, you, you did your thing. You, you experienced the World Series of Poker. Now it's time to get serious. And so I started going to school to get my teaching certificate to teach um, high school history. And it was an accelerated one-year program. And so in 2010, I had taken all my courses and I just needed to do um, student teaching. And so I was, I think there was about six months of student teaching. I was about four and a half months in. I was about a month and a half away from getting my teaching certificate when the 2010 World Series of Poker was rolling around. And um, I decided, you know, what the heck, let me just put out some feelers just to see what's going on. And I had met uh, Mickey Doft. Mickey Doft is a longtime poker tournament reporter. He's been around for uh, longer than me. And I met him in 2009. He was working for Poker News. I didn't know what Poker News was at the time. I was interning with Bluff, but he told me what Poker News does. So I said, well, let me reach out to Mickey. So I sent Mickey an email, which changed my life really, because I said, Hey, I'm what, you know, what's poker news doing this year? And he's like, you need to get in touch with Gary Gates. Uh, Gary Gates was in charge of poker news at the time. Uh, listeners might know him from finishing fourth in the WSOP main event a few years back in 2019. Um, and has been playing quite a bit. He's you know, pretty well known in the poker industry. Well, Gary was transitioning out of poker news. And so he said, well, you need to talk to Matt Parvis, who was coincidentally transitioning from bluff who had just hired me as an intern to poker news. So Matt Parvis was familiar with me and, and gave me an opportunity to come out to the World Series in 2010. And this was a very different circumstance than the year before. They were actually going to pay me really well, you know, compared to what I had gotten the year before. So I left student teaching short of getting my actual degree, went out to the World Series again, and uh, just had a couple goals. I wanted to you know, work hard, make a good impression, and hopefully get invited back for other opportunities. And I mean, here we are now, 
12 years later about, and uh, I'm still working for Poker News. There's been some ups and downs and different gigs in between, but uh, yeah, that's kind of my poker origin story, if you will. Yeah, it's um, things just kind of lined up in perfectly to set the stage for you spending the last 12 years doing yeah, doing what you do in the world of poker. Um, going back to you know your your origin story, um, it seems like you didn't really have a great idea of like what you wanted to do. You know, like at the end of high school, making your way through college, but poker was on your radar. Why? Why do you think? Why do you think you just didn't kind of go for it in the poker world before that, like in college? I think probably just financially. Uh, I grew up in a, like I said, a small town in Wisconsin. Um, my parents divorced when I was young, so my mom raised me in uh, a trailer park. I grew up in a trailer park till I was 18, and she very much lived paycheck to paycheck and trying to make ends meet, and sometimes she couldn't. So um, money was always just kind of an, an issue. And so I certainly didn't have the money to take poker too serious. Like I said, I used $400 extra I had from student loans to really start funding things. And um, I recall even come when I came back to Wisconsin, I was trying to figure out what I was doing, going to do. And I was working odd jobs, you know, making minimum wage or barely above it, but still trying to go to the casino from time to time. And there were some times back then where, you know, I had some very unhealthy habits. I remember, you know, back then, uh, if you had credit cards, they would sometimes send you checks that you could write out to yourself and kind of take a cash advance off your credit card. And I did that a few times just so I'd have money to go to the casino. And, you know, I was a more or less a break-even player. Sometimes I'd go and I'd win, but then I'd balance it out the next week by losing it back. And so it was never really gaining too much traction. And um, I started playing online a little bit to try to maybe build something there. Um, I was trying to play some satellites for you know, to win away to like an EPT or something. I was doing that for a couple months before Black Friday struck. So that kind of put a halt to that. And, yeah, perfect timing. <laughs> yeah, right. And, uh, you know, so and I flirted with the idea of, uh, you know, the supernova elite, what's that all about? But before I could even take that into consideration, like I said, Black Friday. And this was early with poker news as well. So 2010, I did the WSOP. It didn't lead to a full-time thing straight away. You know, they reached out to me, said, would you be interested in writing a few articles? And they asked me if I'd be interested in going to an LAPT in Argentina. Uh, I said, of course, you know, that that uh, was a phone call I'll never forget. And uh, all the while, I just tried to work really hard and showed them that I was reliable. And eventually that did lead to a full-time position with Poker News and, um, you know, opportunities to travel around the world. And so I just kind of have always balanced work with playing poker. You know, I do still like to play. I still take my shots. Obviously, in 2013, when I had the opportunity to play the Casino Employees event and ultimately won that for a WSLP bracelet, that was um, life-changing, just both personally, you know, achieving that dream, and then professionally, just gave me kind of a rocket boost, if you will, you know, it's just a your average reporter to all of a sudden being the reporter who just shipped the bracelet. So, yeah, um, that was that was definitely a life-changing experience. Yeah. Tell me about that. You know, tell me about playing down to the final table and then winning the bracelet. Like, how did you feel? What emotions were, yeah, kind of going on through that experience? It was uh, very interesting because it was about a week before the WSOP started that year. I was in New Orleans, um, back in New Orleans for the global, it wasn't the global casino championship. It was the national championship of the World Series of Poker Circuit. So it was the culmination of the season long WSOP circuit. I was down there for poker news. 
to do updates and they had a player party. And I remember we were on this riverboat having drinks and there was a circuit grinder that I knew and was friendly with named Nancy Birnbaum. She plays a lot in South Florida now. And we were having drinks and she kind of said, you know, are you playing anything this year? And I said, well, we just learned the World Series of Poker is going to let us play the casino employees event. We weren't exactly casino employees, but Caesars was hiring us to do the updates. So they considered us employees and gave us the opportunity to play that event. So I said, well, I hadn't really thought about it, but I'll probably play that. She said, well, what's the buy-in? I said $500, which at the time was about what I was comfortable playing with, uh, you know, in my own bankroll. And uh, she says, well, do you want me to put you in? And usually I'd probably say, no, nah, that's all right. It's only 500 bucks. But I thought I'd ask, like, what are you thinking? You know, most kind of deals like that would be, oh, well, I'll put you in, but I get 80% or 70% of anything you win, you get 20% or 30% you get to keep. But she said 50-50, which is a, a great deal in, in anybody's book, I think. So she was going to put up the 500 and I get to have a 50% free roll. And so I said, sure, let's do it. And um, yeah, we go to play the tournament. You already know the ending. I ended up uh, winning it. It was 898 players, won it for just uh, shy of 85,000, which was you know a ton of money at the time. Of course, I had uh, half of that. I had 50% of it. So, but um, it was a whirlwind experience because look at that time in my poker career, I was like, all right, I want to win a world series of poker circuit ring. Like the ring was where it was at winning a bracelet was, yeah, I wanted to win a bracelet, but that was going to be five, 10 years down the road when I built myself up and when I built up a suitable bankroll. Um, and so to go in there, it was just a two day event. It was a turbo format back then. It was much different than it is now. I think we started with 3000 and chips. I think it might've been 20 minute levels. And I lost like two thirds of my stack within 20 minutes. It was, you know, it was nothing special for a while, but then I just kept going deeper and deeper. And we played from uh, almost 900 players down to, I think 53 bagged at the end of day one. And I was third in chips. And so we were came, coming back for day two. And even in that situation, you're still 53 players away from a winner. There's a full day to play. You don't think you're going to win it really. You just, all right, let's just get to yeah, back to got, playing. We got like, a little more than 2% um, on right. average. Yeah. And I just, and so I didn't tell like many, you know, my work colleagues knew, obviously there were some other poker news employees who were still in as well. So we had this group dynamic, which was pretty exciting, but I didn't tell my, you know, folks back home or friends back home. And that day two was just, it was like a 16 hour day. It was super long. You know, uh, we only had breaks, 10 minute breaks, every two levels or whatever it may have been. And so it was, it was this whirlwind, like, wow, did, 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 did this just happen? You know, I made it um, to the final table and I remember vividly a hand um, at the final table, I think eight players were remaining and it was against Michael Trevet, who nowadays is, uh, went on to become a very accomplished player. He's playing a lot of the bigger buy-in mixed games. He won the World Series of Poker Circuit Planet Hollywood main event. And he's just really on the cusp of becoming a, He's a, he's a big name and established name in poker, but he's on the cusp of becoming a really big name in my opinion. But back then he was uh, fresh off being a casino dealer. He was the best player at the final table. He had finished day one as the chip leader and we had managed never to play against each other until the final table, um, just the way it worked out. But my colleague, Josh Kalick, who worked for Poker News, I think he finished, I want to say 12th place that year. He had played with him a lot and he told me a lot about Michael Trevet and the sort of game that he was playing. And 
So I remember this hand vividly with eight players remaining. It folded to Michael Trevette, I believe, in the cutoff. Uh, and he raised it. And at this point in the final table, everyone was relatively short, right? You weren't playing super deep stack. And um, he it folded to me. Uh, he raised it in the cutoff, it folded to me in the big blind, and I looked down at ace eight. Um, and I just knew from what my buddy had told me that Michael Trevette was really aggressive. So I just figured he was raising in position. I was going to put in a three bet. So I put in a, a three bet and it is on him and he pauses for a few beats and then four bet jams on me. And in hindsight, this is you know definitely probably not the, the right move, but for whatever reason, I just had this feeling that my ace was good here, that he just wouldn't jam like this. Uh, I, I thought like, I thought, you know, best case scenario, he's got an ace, but I got him beat. My eight is better. Like if he's jamming with ace, you know, five, six, seven, something like that. Um, maybe he's doing this with a smaller pocket pair and then at least I'm flipping, but I just, for whatever reason, didn't get the sense that he was doing it with a better ace or a big pocket pair or anything. Um, and I also think, you know, looking back, there's some little bit of, uh, self-sabotage in me, you know, that, uh, that I just was willing to take a risk and whatever the case I did, I ended up calling and it was essentially for my tournament life too. We were very similarly stacked. Um, and he had King Jack. And I was ahead. It's not a huge favorite, but I was ahead and fortunately flopped an ace and held and and uh, eliminated him in eighth place and became the chip leader. And I think that was the really defining moment for me because I think it put the fear in a lot of the players at that final table. Like I'm not afraid to to mix it up. And um, yeah, long story short, I mean, several hours later, eight hours later, what have you, managed to to close it out. Um, it wasn't easy though. Heads up was. Um, quite a battle. It took a couple hours. It was late in the night. And uh, I'll never forget one hand there where I got it in with two pair against my opponent's top pair. On, we got it in on the turn. So I was one card away from winning the bracelet. The river came, it paired the board counterfeiting me. And my rail didn't realize that, you know, I had all my coworkers and stuff. They thought I won. So they charged the, uh, the stage. I knew that I didn't win. I saw it right away. Um, and then my opponent took a two to one chip lead after doubling in that hand. And, you know, I started to kind of feel unjust and tilty a little bit. And I remember sitting there, I was looking at the bracelet, they had set it on the table um, and I could feel the, that rage, you know, building in me, the momentum had swung. And um, I just remember calming myself by looking at that bracelet and just thinking, Chad, you can't, you can't do this right now. You can't tilt. You need to focus and, and try to win this. You're, you might not ever be this close again. And do you really want to say that you were one card away from winning a world series of poker bracelet? Um, when my opponent offered, uh, he wanted to do a deal, which aren't allowed at the WSOP, but we, you know, went like a lot of people do went away from the table and, and chatted and he offered a good deal. And, um, but then he said something in the negotiations, which was, you know, we can do this deal is basically 50, 50. And, uh, and, but then we can, I don't know, flip for the bracelet, something along those lines. And it was at that moment where I realized the bracelet meant little to him. The money meant everything to him. And it was kind of the opposite for me. Like the bracelet meant everything to me. The money was great, but it wasn't what I you know was after. Like I love poker and a bracelet is the dream of everybody. And so I realized if I were to do a deal with him, um, that would take the pressure off of him, right? That he, he might just come in and go all in blind for all I know. I, I just, I realized I couldn't do that. So I, you know, politely declined the deal and got the nickname for a little bit of no chop Chad. 
after turning that down. And, and then just fortunately for me, the cards went my way, the hands went my way, and I got the chip lead back and ultimately finished it off. And man, it was, it, like I said, it, a whirlwind is the way to put it because I wanted to win a WSOP circuit ring first. And all of a sudden here I have a bracelet at the start of the 2013 World Series of Poker when I'm slated to work the next seven, eight weeks for poker news grinding live updates. And so um, it, was, it was hard to have a bad summer after that start, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, couple things to unpack there. Uh, first question that I have is, you know, you mentioned that, you know, growing up, you didn't have much money um, and trying to grind your flat screen TV uh, at the casino. Do you, like, why didn't the money matter to you more than the bracelet? Why was the prestige of the bracelet, you know, the driving force um, when you're playing heads up there? I think for me at the time was, you know, I was on the come up as far as I was concerned of building um, a career. So I kind of knew the money was going to come or, you know, I was going to work my way up and the bracelet just meant everything to me. I just, it's hard to under to, to state how much I loved poker back then. I still do. Obviously I've devoted my life to it. But back then I remember, um, and I still have them literally three feet away from me in a file cabinet next to me. Um, I used to cut out articles from Card Player Magazine, Bluff Magazine, other magazines that were out there. So if there was an article about a poker player, um, let's say there was an article about Chris Moneymaker, I would cut that article out. You know, I'd read it, I'd study it, I'd cut it out, and then I'd put it in a folder labeled Chris Moneymaker. And, and I had these like clippings, like an old school reporter might do back in the day before Google and the internet. Um, and I did that for different poker pros, poker tours, poker tournaments, all that. And I just love poker. I was um, using uh, Hendon Mob back in 2009 and 10 to compile different kind of lists that, you know, like who were the top earners in the game of Raz and things like that. And I just love poker. I love the characters. And I think it was just the spirit of competition. Like I've always been the type of person who, if I play a game, I want to win. And so that's why, you know, the bracelet meant so much to me. I guess it was a little bit of validation that I was okay at poker, at least that I could win, that I could compete. And yeah, I think that's, that's what it was all about for me. And I, I'm still that way. Like money is great, but it, it comes and goes, but you know, if you win a WSOP bracelet, if you win any kind of prestigious title in and out of poker, like those are the things that help contribute to, you know, a legacy and the, the mile markers of a life that you can look back and say, you know, I achieved this and I did this. And I'm all, all about that kind of stuff in poker. I really appreciate those players who have a similar view. I don't, you know, hold it against the players who are, don't care about bracelets and are all about money. Um, there was a guy here at a WSOP circuit stop in Wisconsin who had just won a PLO ring in uh, the WSOP circuit. And I said, you know, congratulations, John. Uh, winning the rings i don't care i we've both been drinking i said what do you mean you don't care he said i, I just I wanted the money i don't care about the ring I'm like, if you don't want the ring what are you going to do with it he's like <laughs> i don't know i said do you want to sell it and he's like really i said yeah and uh, he's he said 200 bucks i said sold i gave him 200 dollars and bought his his uh, wsop circuit ring you know and um so i don't disparage somebody who feels that way but like um you know it's uh for me, it was just a part of the collection. You know, I don't claim to have won a circuit ring. It just it's a cool little memento to, to add because I like to collect poker memorabilia. But um, I don't know. I just love the history of the game. 
I think that's where one of my strengths comes in in this industry is I know the history of the game really well. I have a respect for it. And I always do my best to try to honor it and also tie it to the game as it is today, because there's a very stark difference as you know, how, you know, we talked a little bit before the podcast about how there's, you, you always have a strategy article you got to write because the game's always evolving. And, uh, you know, poker is always evolving both from a strategy perspective, but also from a legacy and history perspective, we're always adding to it. And I'm honored to be, you know, kind of one of the people who helps capture the poker history. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like just hearing your story that like you were kind of made for the gig you've been doing for the past, you know, 12 years, right? Like you just love history. You love poker. Um, you love the competition and you love legacies, right? Like building legacies, reporting on legacies, building your own legacy, all of those things that like, that's, that's really awesome. And yeah, you, you mentioned what's interesting is like, I never really thought about it like this until you, you phrased it in the way that like poker is always changing. Um, I just kind of realized that like poker never changes like the game. It's the people that play poker that change, you know, it's, it's the player's level of understanding of the game of poker that really evolves and changes. And, and yeah, like as the people change, the winning strategies also shift and change because inherently poker is a game of people and human beings that you're playing against. And like your strategy uh, tends to be reliant on their strategy, right? Like you're, you're, you're going to make a strategic move that you think exploits the, the strategy of your opponent. And that's just kind of how it goes. But yeah. Um, going back to, you mentioned like self-sabotage uh, in that story. You know, you said you, I believe you said you have a tendency to trend towards self-sabotage. Could you tell me a little bit about that and a little bit about, you know, gaining awareness that this is something that, you know, you struggle with it is a characteristic that you have because like i think a lot of times in life and we all sabotage what we're doing like you know subconsciously and a lot of times like people can go through their whole life without realizing that like they have been sabotaging themselves so yeah could you speak on that a little bit yeah i think it's something that i uh, still struggle with to this day and have moments where I, I certainly do it and it's not you know always a conscious decision it's more often than not subconscious, but, you know, it would probably take uh, years of therapy to unpack it all, but I, I think it probably harkens back to just a lot of how I was raised and where I came from, um, you know, like I said, growing up uh, fairly poor. I don't know if it's just like a, uh, this idea in the back of my head of, like, I don't operate where I deserve anything, that I, um, that I, um, I'm owed anything. I, I try to work hard to achieve what I can, but I think at times too, I always just feel like oh, it's, it's a hard thing to explain. Like um, maybe there's something subconscious about like that hand at the, the final table with the ace eight, I guess, you know, looking back on it, um, I did think I was good and what have you, but uh it, it was one of those things where maybe subconsciously I'm looking at it like, all right, if I get it in here and I am good and I lose, at least I can say I got unlucky or something like that, you know? Um, and so sometimes I think I take those risks because if the outcome isn't what I desire, I still kind of have an excuse for it. If that makes sense. Yeah, um, it does. It makes a lot of, of sense. Yeah, and instead of owning up to it or, you know, facing my own, insecurities and vulnerabilities and 
Um, I'm getting better at that, I think for sure. You know, I just turned 39, so I'm going on on 40. And so it's a lot easier to be self-reflective, to uh, admit your faults and try to address them, you know, the older you get, as opposed to, to when you're in your 20s and even early 30s. And, you know, you mentioned how the game has evolved. It's interesting to me how players evolve in the game, not just from a strategy perspective, but from a life perspective. Um, and it ties into like the self-sabotage. So like when you're in your 20s and you're coming up in poker, you're hungry, you're anxious. Maybe you have a passion and you're trying to prove yourself. You're trying to build something. Uh, and you see that today. You see it with a lot of the young players that are coming in. Like a, a Landon Tice is a guy who you know, has come on strong and I've gotten the opportunity to play against Landon, to meet Landon. And um, I see a lot of that passion and fire that he has something similar that I had when I first came into the industry. But then as you go along, you see guys, and I, you know, I'm certainly getting more and more in this camp who, when they were younger, maybe were more reckless or took more gamble, but then they start having some accomplishments and they have some life experience and maybe they have life developments, like they have children or they get married and that gamble and that willingness to put it all on the line shrinks. Now this is not everybody, of course, but um, you know, priorities, I guess, shift. And when you do start having life, not, I say, when, once you have life uh, um, items, you know, when you have a house, when you have responsibilities, cars, responsibilities, exactly. That's, like, that's the one. Yeah. You're not willing to put it all on the line. You know, you become a lot more uh, conscious about, about the consequences of things. And well, you, you have more that. to risk, you know, there, there, you exactly. ha- there's a lot more to risk. And I've been around this industry long enough to see those players who are in their, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, who maybe never learned that lesson and did keep keep risking it. And you keep doing that. Eventually, it, I think, catches up to you. This game can be pretty brutal. And I've always tried to be mindful of that. And, you know, growing up the way that I did, always being pretty paycheck to paycheck, I am fairly frugal. Like, I like to make my my money last and not take too reckless of decisions. And um, I never want to be broke again. I never want to, you know, be living paycheck to paycheck. And I think that stems through my childhood. And then as kind of harkening back to what you just asked about self-sabotage, for me personally, I know one of the things that I struggle with is my life circumstances, right? So I'm not uh, married. I don't have kids. I don't have a family. So a lot of the behavior that I may engage in from time to time isn't hurting anybody but myself. Um, and I was okay with that for a long, long time. As I'm getting older, I'm trying to learn and develop the necessary tools to, um, you know, appreciate myself more, love myself more, not hurt myself more um, through my decisions and actions and things like that. So um, it's an ongoing thing, you know, it's a growing process, but uh, I feel like I'm you know, doing all right as I'm approaching 40 at least. Yeah, the I think our 30s are the times to like, um, I read a quote a while ago, I probably going to butcher it, but basically it was something along the lines of like in your twenties, it's really exciting learning things. You know, you're just like learning all these things and it's just like a super exciting time. And your thirties are the times of your life when you get excited about unlearning things, right? Like you've kind of evolved beyond the learning stage to where now it's like, oh, wait, like, let's challenge this belief that I have. Let, let's challenge, like, these things that I do. Like, maybe I don't need to do them anymore. Um, and, and, yeah, like, just I, 
I think most human beings mature and there's a lot of danger in poker. And even for someone like me, I think that in my 20s, I was quite risk averse. Um, like I never had a pit problem. I never had a drug problem. I never had like a, a stripper problem. You know, like the problems that can break um, a lot of poker players that kind of come and go throughout this world. Um, but when you hang around poker players in casino atmospheres, a lot of the negative behavior becomes normalized. Like a lot of these like bankroll torching events, just they're so like, uh, it's, it's hard for me to describe. I had Dan Zach on yesterday, but it's almost like it's, it's such a common thing that you think to yourself like, oh, this is like normal behavior. Like, oh, if they do it, like surely it's okay, right? Um, you know, and that's sort of like a big downfall and something that like the the CPG listener right now I think needs to take to heart is like, yeah, behaviors that crush you will crush you. Doesn't matter who you are. Having a, a, a craps problem, a Baccarat problem, like will inevitably crush you. Um, so like avoiding those kind of pitfalls and avoiding the temptation uh, of feeling like, well, if they do it, like it's probably okay. You know, I think that's just something that like, yeah, it's, I, I struggled with the, the, that peer pressure aspect of just, you know, degenning it up a, as a poker player. But like, yeah, you, you, you can't have any of those leaks. You, you just, you're toast if you do. Um, and uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you, and I feel like I'm the same boat as you. Like, I don't play in the pits very often. If I lose $40 playing blackjack, I'm more tilted than if I lose a $2,000 pot playing poker. Um, you know, and I don't play slots. I don't sports bet. I intentionally never wanted to learn craps because I've seen what it does to people in the poker world. I've had a first, um, you know, a front row view of poker players who have won hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars, and um, lose it all. And I never wanted to be that way. Um, not that I've ever won that much, but what I do end up winning or have, I, I, I certainly want to hold on to. I think my biggest uh, leak is, uh, well, it's twofold. It's a sickness that I think a lot of poker players have in that off the table, away from poker, I'm pretty frugal. Like if there's a video game that I want, I'm thinking about buying, I'm like, ah, it's 60 bucks. Do I really need it? I need the $60 video game. That seems like a lot of money. But then you get me in a pot limit Omaha game and, oh, I've got a wrap with a flush draw let's get my $2,000 stack in as fast as we possibly can. So there's that money disconnect, which is it just kind of uh, sick in a lot of regards. Um, and then, gosh, I don't even remember what my second point was going to be. <laughs> totally space it. Um, it's, uh, but yeah, that, that money disconnect is always interesting to me from a poker perspective. But I, I always try to, I don't know, being a history major. Oh, my other vice. I remember what I was going to say now. I do like to drink, have some drinks when I'm playing poker. I think it harkens back just to the history of the game, the romanticism, you know, the. That's the another guys. thing that gets normalized. Like, just, you know. Yeah. Um, I've gotten a lot better at, at pulling back from that, but there's definitely a time where, you know, when I was playing poker, I wanted to have some drinks. And of course, especially in this day and age of poker where it's ultra competitive, um, playing WSOP events or other tournaments like that, you know, you, you're going to put yourself at a huge disadvantage when you've got guys who are there for for business and you're yeah, there you're, for you're battling pleasure. chewy right like you you know chewy probably wasn't 
up drinking last night and probably didn't didn't have a couple of drinks this morning. You know, he's meditating and <laughs> doing doing all of his things to show up to play optimally. Yeah, exactly. And it, that's something that I've had to kind of deal with and come to terms with. And you know, over the, my 20s and 30s, I certainly torched a lot of money in cash games or what have you. And I still do from time to time. There was uh, one night during this World Series of Poker where I you know had some drinks and sat down torched off $300 at a you know low stakes PLO cash game. But like I said earlier in our chat, you know, that doesn't hurt anybody but me. You know, I, It's not uh, taking away rent money, not taking away money from a family that I don't have and things like that. So I can do that sort of thing without you know, huge consequences. But as you kind of just alluded to, it's a very slippery slope. You've got to be very careful because the lifestyle of poker can chew you up and spit you out. I mean, there are a lot of poker pros, like I said, who have won millions of dollars, who had outside income during the poker boom, where they were making hundreds of thousands of dollars a month that are now essentially broke. And those are lessons where, you know, I'm a history major. I've always believed, like, I don't necessarily have to experience something firsthand to learn from it. History is there. There's a map and a lot of history is cyclical. And so if you don't learn lessons from it, I think you're doing yourself a disservice. So I've always tried to do that, especially in the poke world. Um, hence why, like I said, I avoid going to the pits. I don't want to know sports, but I don't want to know craps because, you know, you very rarely do you see that kind of stuff working out for a poker player. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Like you're not special, right? I think that's just something that like we have to kind of accept about ourselves and like at, in the poker journey, like we're not, special or unique in that we can overcome traps that have snared other people throughout the the poker history, right? Like we just have to safeguard against that. I think that like you can go too extreme um, in safeguarding. You know, you, you mentioned like bombing off 300 bucks at PLO and drinking, right? Like that to me, that's whatever like like that's just sort of like an isolated fun experience and you're just like messing around right like so to me that is not like a, a major leak but as long as you can compartmentalize that right like i would um up until like even the last few years like my my wife would buy lottery tickets and i'm like why like why are we doing that like it's just like we're spending a dollar to get back like 50 cents. Like I, I don't understand why anybody would buy a lottery ticket just like from the systematic way in which I go about placing bets and living my life. Um, and then, you know, I recently I've kind of reflected on that and learned that like the sweat is okay. You know, like paying, like spending 20 bucks knowing that on average you're getting 10 bucks back, but you know, just thinking about like, what would I do if I won the lottery? How would my life change? Like looking at the numbers and like getting that sweat, I, I think can provide more than $10 worth of value or EV that, that you lose. And so like, I do think that like messing around at a 25 cent slot machine or whatever, like if it's fun and if you're able to not go full degen, I do think there is a place for that. You know, um, this is like, as I get older, uh, I kind of, I guess, I guess over time I, I've developed more self-trust. Like I had a slot machine problem. Like when I was 21, it was like the first problem that I had as a poker player was like, Oh, I like action. I like getting the money in, in poker. That rarely happens in a slot machine. I can just switch my brain off. It's like low intensity, uh, cognitive energy spent and I get action, you know? And so like, I think I lost, um, I don't know. I'm like one night in Tunica, 
I had like 5,100 in cash on me and I like stuffed 5k into a hundred dollar slot machine. Um, with my last hundred, just like got in my car and drove home. Right. I saved the $100. And like, I remember that feeling. Um, and then I didn't play slot machines for a decade, like not for fun, not getting near them, just staying completely away from them. And then like, I don't know, uh, over the last few years, it's like, yeah, just play a 25 cent slot machine. I'm not the same 21 year old kid that was just really dumb and new to the industry, you know, where 25 cents, uh, three credits at a time is not going to be like life altering in any way. So, I mean, yeah, like I guess my, my stance is softened over time, but like playing big pressing, um, going to the pits every night where I just think those are leagues that you just can't overcome. And it doesn't matter how talented you are. It doesn't matter how great of a poker mind you are. You, you just can't beat that. Um, but uh, yeah, let's go back to the self-sabotage thing too, because I think it's important to just talk about how, and I experienced this um, as well, where when you don't fully commit, and don't fully try in a field, you don't realize whether or not you were good enough to make it. And I think my biggest fear, at least, would be to invest myself fully into something for a while, only to ultimately come to the conclusion that, like, I'm not good enough. I just can't do it. It's beyond my skill set as a human being, right? Like, that, that is like that my ultimate fear um, and a thing that has held me back, I think, from, you know, the training space, uh, even the poker space, right? Like even um, playing in cash games and kind of not pushing myself to reach like the highest stakes that I could possibly make it to as a poker player. Um, is that kind of how you feel about self-sabotage that like even you mentioned school, right? Like I slept in school. I missed most days of my senior year of high school. Like I just didn't go. I didn't try. I made straight B's. So good for me. Um, but even back then, I, I think like self-sabotage was real and I didn't want to fully commit only to come up short because like then everything people told me, you're clever, you're smart. Um, you can do whatever you want to do. Uh, that would kind of prove those people wrong. And that's a really hard thing to break out of. Yeah, I think for me, and maybe for a lot of people, it harkens and is maybe rooted in how one deals with failure and rejection. And traditionally, for me, I don't deal well with those things. Um, same, same. Yeah. And so with the self-sabotage, I think it's twofold. I think it's like this, you want to succeed, but subconsciously, maybe there's a part of you that doesn't feel you deserve to succeed, that maybe you never will, that maybe there's a fear of what if I do succeed, then what, or what's next, or how will I deal with that? And then the kind of self-sabotage aspect of it is, like I said, like if you find the self-sabotage, in my experience has come in these opportunities, quote unquote opportunities, if you want, that can justify the failure, if you will. Like, um, here's an opportunity to self-sabotage because if I do it here, then I have justification. I didn't fail. I got unlucky or yeah, you've got an excuse, right? I, I made B's in right. high school because I didn't go to, to class, you know, only exactly. three days a week. Right. Yeah. And I think, um, 
you know, you do that long enough and then you don't learn how to deal with rejection or deal with failure. Um, it can lead to, to bad things, especially later in life. I mean, I know some poker pros out there, I won't name names, but some poker pros out there who, um, you know, are 50, 60 years old who have been playing poker for a lifetime and still don't know how to deal with loss and deal with, uh, maybe the game having passed them by and, and being able to see things in a realistic light. And I probably have my moments too, but I, like I said earlier, I'm working on it. I'm trying to, you know, even from a poker strategy perspective, um, you know, back in 2007, 2008, back then I was ahead of the curb. I knew what I was doing. I was winning. It was one of those times in poker where if two people at the table knew what they were doing, that was a lot, you know, that most of the table didn't. Nowadays, it's the complete opposite. You're lucky if you have one person at the table who doesn't know what they're doing. Um, and in 2013 era, you know, when I did win my bracelet, I was pretty adept at the game. Uh, you know, I was having success. But then between then and now, the game passed me by in a lot of regards. And it took me several years to recognize that, to accept that, and to realize I need, okay, to not necessarily start fresh, but I need to retool my game. I've got a lot of things I've got to learn, kind of like Daniel Negreanu did, you know, at the, the the higher stakes. And I actually contributed, this is several years ago, um, Jonathan Little did a book called Excelling at No Limit Hold'em and asked me and many others to contribute chapters. And he let us choose what we wanted to write about. And so I pitched, I wanted to combine my love of history and poker, but it's a strategy book. So I thought it would be fun to write about how the game had evolved from or basically the poker boom up until when the book was being written. And you remember back in 2003, for a standard open might be three times the big blind. Um, whereas at the time of writing the book, it was more like um, maybe 1.5 or a min raise. And so just examining the nuances of how the game had evolved and that's what my chapter was about. I was honored when he selected it to lead off the book. It's the first chapter in the book because I feel it was, uh, and I think they felt that it was indicative of showing how poker just changes. And for me, like I said, I was ahead of the curve. I remember Daniel Negreanu's small ball approach. If you, I'm sure you do too. And like poker that VT, was, the whole, yeah, yeah. and that was ahead of the game and that gave you an edge, but I relied on those skills too long and I wasn't a, you know, a winning player. I haven't done much since I've won my bracelet. You know, I've won a, a few things, you know, um, had some caches here and there, but I haven't had that big success that I had then. I want it, but I know now that I can't rely on the skills that I had always relied on that got me to that point. There's a quote, um, you know, you cited one earlier and I, I'm a big believer in when I read a quote that really resonates me, I, I have a book that I write it down and then there's a quote that I always try to remember um, along the lines of what got you here doesn't necessarily mean it will take you further. Something along those lines. I'm sure I butchered that. Um, but, you know, my poker skills took me to that point and that was about it. And so now I'm actually in a point in my poker career when I do have the opportunity to play um, where I'm trying to learn new things. You know, I'm not hitting the solver streets and um, diving headfirst into GTO, but I'm at least familiarizing myself with what it is, how it operates, how people do it, how it has impacted our game. Um, and fortunately, with my role with Poker News, I've always tried to appreciate the fact that I have a front row seat to watching some of the best poker players in the world compete when I'm doing live updates, you know, at the high rollers or at the World Series of Poker. Um, I have access now to 
poker players. Um, you know, Jonathan Little is a guy I have a good relationship with, a lot of other poker coaches and training sites. And so I have, you know, tools that I'd be foolish not to try to take advantage of. So I try to always do that and really am just trying to um, work on my game and, and play when I can. It's, uh, you know, it's a lot of work doing what I do in the poker industry from a writing and reporting perspective, but I still like to play. I still like to take my shots and um, I'm fascinated by the game of poker still um, to this day. I, I can't say that I've always loved it. It's ebbed and flowed over the years where, you know, I've really enjoyed what I'm doing. Other times flirted with the idea, like, all right, if I wasn't doing poker, what would I be doing? But ultimately, I think, you know, I've been around now for more than a decade and really don't envision myself uh, going anywhere. It's you know, like the title of this show suggests, it's chasing poker greatness. And even if you attain it, um, you know, success is and greatness can be fleeting. It's getting to the top, trying to stay on top. And then when you inevitably fall off a mountaintop, just striving to get back there. And uh, I'm definitely in that rat race with a lot of other players in the poker world. Yeah. And I mean, you, you, you mentioned something like you, we only have so many projects we can invest our energy into. And it's really hard to stay ahead of the competition when you've got a project that just takes most of your work, wake, waking energy, right? Like, which is, um, all your responsibilities at poker news. And, you know, for me, like I haven't released a bunch of podcast episodes over the last probably two and a half months, right? Like I, I recorded some and then started like stagger releasing them as I was like running out of, um, new, new shows to focus fully on my wolves program because like, I recognize like I can't write a daily newsletter. I can't release four podcast episodes a week while starting a coaching for profit um, project that requires just full investment of energy and time, right? Because like they're hard. Not not many of them succeed over the long run. It's tough building the infrastructure. It's tough communicating concepts to human beings um, in a way that resonates, that they understand, that they can execute at the poker table. So like that demanded most of my focus. And I think as I go forward with my business um, and just my life, like limiting the amount of projects that I'm working on at any one time is just kind of a necessary component of like, yeah, there's give and take, there's different priorities at different stages. And right now my priority is like, be the best coach I can, uh, be the best poker player that I can be so that I can communicate information to my guys. And then whenever that's sort of ironed out and I have a Lieutenant to take over, um, then I will transition to just, you know, the content, the marketing, the growth side of the business while recognizing that, yeah, my poker ability, my teaching ability, when I'm not actively doing it all the time, will go down over time, right? Like my ability to have an edge over the competition will drop when you're not investing full energy in, into it. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, uh, it harkens back to a lot of what we touched upon. Like when we were in our twenties, we didn't have all the side stuff, the to-do list, so you could just focus and play poker. Yeah, um, that's it. Yeah, and now it's uh, you know, for me as I'm getting older, like I said, I'm going on forty. Um, I devoted a lot of my time to poker in my twenties and thirties to the point where it's like I'm at a point now, like okay, am I ever going to get to devote time and attention to my personal life? You know, am I ever going to have a meaningful relationship, start a family, that sort of thing? So that's certainly on my mind and. You know, if you're devoting energy there, that's energy you're not devoting to, you know, playing the game of poker or 
your professional career. And then one thing I wanted to touch upon because it really resonated with me, and I'm sure we're similar in this aspect of we always kind of have like a to-do list or projects that we want to do. And I'm certainly no different. And the idea that we talked about of kind of failure for a long time, and I still struggle with it, getting better with it. But, you know, if I had a to-do list, if I didn't do those things, I was failing. And it was hard for me. So it was hard for me not to get this to-do list. And it just kept growing and it kept growing and it kept growing and I could never quite get there. And I've gotten to a point now, and it was just the other day I was looking at my list and there was like these eight articles that I had had on my to-do list forever, but I just realized, you know what? I'm not going to get to these. I don't need to get to these really when I break it down and look at it. Let me just strike these off, put them in the loss column, accept that failure. And man, it was like a weight off my shoulders. It really was. Like I, I didn't do them. I just realized I didn't have to do them and accepted that loss. And I'm, I'm, I'm getting, trying to get better at that sort of thing and, and saying no to things, you know, uh, in front of, from a professional capacity. Yeah. It's, prioritization right like it's just like not lying to yourself that you've got all these line items of things you want to accomplish and saying like yeah i'm gonna get to them one day i'm going to do them one day it's like you're probably not and also whatever you're focusing your energy on if you want to be a winning poker player you have to focus your energy on that one project and just fully invest yourself, right? Otherwise, it's not a thing that just happens passively. Um, you don't just buy a poker course um, and then learn the information through osmosis and you're just a better poker player because of it, right? You have to study the material. You have to practice executing. You have to practice uh, integrating. Um, all, all of these all of these things. So like, yeah, I think just self-honesty and recognizing like what your priority is, what project are you working on? And then, you know, not telling falsehoods to yourself and just investing yourself in that pursuit. Um, and then over time, recognizing too, like maybe this project doesn't resonate with me in the way that it once did. And there's something else that I want even more and kind of putting something to the side, recognizing, you know, the cost of putting it to the side and then also recognizing the benefit of taking up this other project um, because there is a cost. We only have so much time. We only have so much energy. There's only so much we can do. Um, so we need to be conscious about what we're prioritizing so that we can, yeah, focus on really what moves the needle and enables us to have a more fulfilling life experience. No, I 100% agree with you. And we're talking from a professional standpoint, you know, working in the poker industry. I think this is also very applicable to players, right? We've, if you're a poker player in your 20s, and I know I was, I was sacrificing things so that I could play poker. And that's what I wanted to do. I was playing poker, but I was sacrificing you know, time spent with family or friends or special occasions. And I know there's poker players out there who have achieved a level of success who look back and kind of wish maybe they did things differently. And as you said, it's just prioritizing. And I think the the values on things that you prioritize change from your 20s to 30s going into 40s. But um, as a player, I, I would encourage anybody to always be conscious of that. Um, you know, there's, there is more to life than poker. Um, even though poker is my life so yeah same um i agree i have the same sentiment poker almost every waking moment that i have is thinking about poker in some capacity of every day but there's also things that you 
that you do, right? That I, that I love, that I enjoy spending time with friends, spending time with family, um, just messing around, playing games, like just all these different things that also positively impact my life and yeah, compartmentalizing, prioritizing, all these things are just very vital in whatever your pursuit is. It doesn't have to necessarily be poker, but recognize that like in this game, there are land entices that are spending a a lot of their waking energy trying to be the best poker player they can be and if your goal is to compete with that how are you what are you doing right like what what does your life look like is that reasonable is that a reasonable expectation um and most of the time it's probably not reasonable because you have other responsibilities and things that will demand more of your time and energy the decision to enter a hand is fundamental to poker strategy too tight and they know what you have. Too loose, and you're easy to run over. Preflop Bootcamp from Chasing Poker Greatness is a comprehensive guide to locking down your preflop game and creating true range advantage. Eight days of guided training, over 60 optimal ranges, and access to a dedicated community of players that will push your preflop game from a place of weakness to your greatest strength. Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp. Available now. John, I wanted to ask you why you decided to invest in a preflop bootcamp. Everything that you had done with me to that point, or I had heard you do, had impressed me. I love the podcast. I accidentally ended up in the poker power hour and loved that. And then I took coaching and then you recommended the boot camp. And at first I didn't think it was, you know, something that would be that valuable. But I was like, everything else has been amazing. So I signed up and then it just blew me away. And what about boot camp blew you away? Like it started off slow, like I'm learning these ranges and I'm not even understanding what you're talking about. And then all of a sudden, as I start to understand what we're doing with the three bets, the four bets, all of a sudden it just kind of hit me. And I was like, oh my God, how do I not know this stuff? This is amazing. The more I studied them, I started to understand why they were constructed sometimes. Like I'd be like, that's why that's like that. And that would lead to more revelations and just a better understanding of poker in general. Do you have any interesting takeaways from your boot camp experience? The most interesting thing about the boot camp, it's a pre-flop boot camp, but I feel like it's done as much for my post game as it did for my pre-game, just because I'm not in as many awkward and bad situations as I found myself in. You know, when we were doing coaching before the boot camp, we couldn't get through 10, 15 minutes of tape without finding mistake after mistake. And then once we did the boot camp, it solved problems on the back end as well. I know you've studied for a thousand hours this year. How do you think boot camp compares to your other poker study? Oh, it's crazy. The boot camp is probably the most important thing I've done all year out of everything. I would give anything to go back and to, to know that stuff 10 years ago. I can't imagine how successful I'd be right now if I had known that stuff. And I thought the boot camp was so valuable that I literally insisted you take more money from me and paid you more for the boot camp. 
because I was blown away. I just thought the price was too cheap. And it's changed my game in ways that I, I can't even explain to you. If you'd like to join the next round of Preflop Bootcamp, which starts on the last Saturday of every month, head to ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp to lock up your spot. One more time, that's ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp. Yeah, so to wrap up, you know, your your story through poker news and your journey through the world of poker, what does your life look like now as it relates to poker news? Um, what are your responsibilities? Sure. So from 2010 to 2016, I was really just like a live reporter. I traveled all around the world um, reporting tournaments, uh, all different continents and countries that were some of the best years of my life for sure. I did get a little burnt out. And so from 2016 to 2018, uh, I took a new position with the Mid-States Poker Tour, the MSPT, which is based in the Midwest where I live. And I was the media director and reporter for, for that tour, uh, which was great. And then in 2019, Poker News brought me back into the fold. Um, they wanted somebody who was really focused on the U.S. market. And so now I have kind of transitioned out of the live reporting. I was a U.S. live reporting manager um, for several years and now have recently transitioned into executive editor for the U.S. So basically overseeing all U.S. operations for poker news um, from the content that we put up on the website to, you know, the reporting that we do, the relationships that we have, and then, of course, the online poker landscape here in the U.S. Um, and in between, I'm still writing articles. You know, that's what I am good at. That's what I'm passionate about. And also co-host the Poker News podcast with Sarah Herring, which is also a lot of fun and, you know, just a, kind of a jack of all trades within Poker News. I've been around a long time. Um, Sarah Herring, who I just mentioned, is the only other one who's been around quite as long as I have. And so we're kind of... Uh, old school and it's it's so weird for me to think that because honestly inside i'm still that poker fanboy and i'm still that rookie in the poker world but in reality you know i'm a veteran at this point um i'm old by poker terms you know 39 going on 40 is uh old in the poker world i don't know how, how old are you i'm 38 yeah, yeah 38. so we're right in the right in the same ballpark but um it's been an interesting journey. I'm looking forward to it. Poker News is uh, doing some great things, and uh, I've already got my sights set on the 2022 World Series of Poker. It's uh, We do the live updates, as I'm sure a lot of people know, and it's a lot of logistical planning. We've already started it, uh, and we're still five, six months away. So I'll be back in Vegas. I'm hoping, fingers crossed, to play the World Series of Poker main event again. Uh, I've played it several times, but I haven't since 2016, I think was the last time I got to play it. So. Um, Fingers crossed, because like I'm at a point with my game where, like I said, I've been I accepted that I'm no longer good at poker, and I started the process of trying to improve. And I do feel that my game has come a long way uh, since I started that process. And I'm actually really looking forward to using these next five months to uh, do some further work and prepare myself for the WSOP. And um, you know, I, I got that taste of poker success. Uh, if I never do anything in poker again, I can hang my hat on. I have a bracelet. It's hard to complain or be upset. But once you have that taste, you just want to go back to the buffet and, and have more. And that's kind of where I'm at. Like, I want to get back in the poker uh, pits, uh, if you will, the poker table, poker streets, and compete and see if I can still compete against the land and Tices of the world and, and what have you and have success. So, um, yeah, well, that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah, let, let's not spin this um, 
spin this like too horribly here. We're not like senior citizens yet, you know. We're, we're <laughs> we still got juice left left in us. There's still gas in the tank um, as it relates to competing, learning. Uh, I feel like my brain still works quite well. If Doyle's shown us anything, he's shown that like longevity in poker is obtainable, and you know you can still compete for you know well into later in life. So yeah, we still got time, man. There's there's still hope. I agree. And I take inspiration from guys like Eric Seidel and Daniel Negreanu who have the self-awareness and recognition to realize the game's always changing and that they need to change with it. Um, Because I think one of the advantages a guy like Alana Tice or anybody coming into the game now is they're coming in, their entry point into the game is where the game currently is from an evolution standpoint, right? So they're coming in with the idea that GTO and solvers is the way poker has been always been played. Whereas guys like us, um, we came in at a different entry point. And a lot of those strategies that we knew that we appreciated at the time are no longer applicable. The game has evolved. So we can't rely on that. We have to evolve with it. And that's more of a challenge. And that only continues the older you get because you have a backlog of poker experience that you probably are tempted to rely on I'll, uh, you know, Phil Hellmuth and Mike Mattisau like to r- rely on a lot of their old tricks where guys like Seidel and, and Negreanu are constantly evolving. So um, I think it's one of those things. Yeah, we're not over the hill yet. We're not out to pasture yet, but we have to be willing to change with the times. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, there's another component to it too, where Landon, young folks who are entering poker are hungry. They're hungry to make it. That's their driving force and whatever make it means to them, money, prestige, bracelets, the glory, whatever that is, right? And when you've had success for decades and you have, you know, a nice house and you you have a, a beautiful family and you have all these other responsibilities, like these hunger, that hunger, that drive oftentimes wanes, right? Like, because you've made it, you don't need to prove yourself anymore. You're, you're already there. Um, and I think that's sort of a, a thing that you've got to guard against as you go on later in your career of getting just sort of nonchalant about regularly studying, improving, learning. I think Negranu does something that I think is really intelligent in that he creates incentives for him to learn and improve and evolve, right? Like just a public challenge against Doug playing heads up, right? Like he was a big underdog, like a massive, massive, massive underdog. And like, you can look at that sort of objectively from a monetary standpoint and just be like, that is a terrible decision. Like, I don't know why you're battling Doug in the format that like he specializes in and like, you know, was the best heads up player in the world or like one of a handful of people who were the best. But yeah, I think Negreanu just used it as a way to motivate him, study, learn, grow to kind of stoke that hunger so that he can make gains relatively quickly. And, you know, if he's going to lose a million bucks or whatever that is, um, maybe that's not a ton of money to Negreanu. And that's like something, it's a price he's willing to pay to stoke that competitive drive so that he learns, he grows, he's a better player. And I mean, to be honest, the ROI of that over the rest of his life, those lessons that he learned, the time he invested will will most likely make him back more than a million dollars. So 
yeah, it's just a part of the long game. And I think it's a clever use of, it's a clever use of like a negative EV challenge that will be plus EV down the road, which yeah, it, it is just very smart to me. I, I like to use long game there. Cause I think poker is a long game, but I think it's a, it's a dangerous game in the respect of the longer you play it, the harder it is to get away from it. So for instance, like Negreanu, like he's going to be in poker forever, right? He's not going anywhere. He's not going to all of a sudden be like, all right, I'm going to go back to school or I'm going to, you know, go try to start this other industry. You know, he likes to play chess or what have you, but like his identity is tied to poker now. And the longer you're in this industry and in this game, the, the harder that tie is. And even for me, like at this point, I think if I'm not doing, if I wasn't doing poker, what would I be doing? And the idea of going into a whole new industry and starting from scratch seems so arduous. And so when you're, in poker for a long time, it becomes harder and harder to separate yourself from it. And that's why you see, I think a lot of guys who might not be successful at poker much anymore are still trying and still on the grind. Um, and a lot of guys who, you know, die alone, old and broke because they can never get away from poker. And then for the young people coming into the game, I would always encourage them to think about what's the end game. Well, you know, what is your end game with poker? Are you here to make a million bucks and then get out? Are you, do you think you're just going to make millions and millions at poker for the rest of your life? Because I can almost guarantee you that's not going to be the case. And so I always have respect for those players who have an idea of what they want to do, who will not put all their eggs in one basket, that they'll use poker as a vehicle to, you know, maybe achieve a certain level of financial freedom and then invest that money in other industries or real estate or whatever it might be and diversify. And then ideally, you know, you have that outside income that continues to fuel your poker playing and poker career, because I've always viewed poker as um, kind of like swimming with an anchor. Some people just can't do it. They get pulled down right away. And that's the end of them. Some people are strong swimmers and they can keep going and going. Yeah, that anchors there, but it doesn't seem to affect them. But eventually, over time, it slowly just holds you back or pulls people down. Whereas when you diversify and add things to it, you know, that's like adding, oh, here's a life vest that you can put on. You diversify enough, you achieve enough. Here's a yacht. You know, you can get on the yacht and out of the water with the anchor. And um, yeah, poker is it. it I, I love the game. It's changed my life. It's given me opportunities. I always have. But I've also seen the, you know, the dark side of it. It's funny. I've been watching a show on, on Hulu called The Dark Side of the Ring about wrestling, about, you know, this industry, but the dark stories. Poker certainly has its fair share. I would make a great for a great TV show, but there's also great things. If, if done right, if used right, you know, if you have that big success and you, you know, don't let it go to your head. If you are smart with your money, if you don't dust it off on the pits on the way out, and that's happened before, you know, people have won bracelets for over a hundred thousand dollars and they don't make it out of the casino with that money because they lose it in the pits. Oh, I mean, um, I played ab absolute poker back in the day. Maybe it was, I can't remember where it was. I think it was absolute. Um, I was at a table. I started a game where a dude hit the bad beat jackpot and it was like over a million. And I think his share was around 200 K. And I mean, he like short bought, right? Like he, he bought in with like 13.21 big blind. So like it was like his account that he bought in with. Right. So like he hits the bad beat jackpot. Um, I like go to sleep. I wake up and see that like he dusted it all off playing 2550 like that night you know just couldn't even log off the platform with 
the bad beat jackpot money, just like dusted it to a reg. Um, and yeah, like again, I, there, there's a lot of self-sabotage in there. There's a lot of <laughs> bad things, but yeah, just because you have success doesn't mean that it lasts for sometimes not even 24 hours. Yeah. Poker is a game where people are always trying to take your money and it's a lot harder to succeed when people are trying to do that. And you're also just self-sabotaging and giving away the money. So yeah, yeah, it's sad sometimes. I do want to say too, uh, as it relates to like creating multiple income streams and sort of insulating yourself from, you know, the long term. Uh, you're just playing the long game of life, really, just like giving yourself more avenues uh, of generating money. Um, choose something that you're interested in, something that is like a, a passion, just like poker, um, whatever that might be. Like if you love writing, um, then invest energy into like figuring out how to, you know, write books, how to self-publish, how to monetize, how to use advertising, like whatever it is that you're passionate about, um, real estate, take a real estate class, right? Like get your real estate license, spend six weeks. I think like getting your real estate license is probably just something that most people who are going to buy a house should do anyway, just because familiarizing yourself with the process of like <laughs> what's going on when you invest, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars into your, th this thing, um, is it, just a good thing overall, but yeah, pursue other things, maybe give yourself one day a week to pursue something outside of poker. Um, and just work at it over time because it takes time. Like a lot of times when you want to get out of poker, uh, you just want to get out like then, but you've got no plan, right? You have no redundancy in place. You just got no options because I mean, like me, right. Uh, started playing poker when I was 19 professional poker player from then till now, um, for, the first, you know, 18 years of my career or 17 years of my career, playing poker was like the sole source of my income. Um, and didn't graduate college, didn't go to college. Um, not many job opportunities for me just being a successful poker player for, you know, 17 years uh, that would pay me anything near what I can make playing poker. And so it just becomes this like trap that like you can't really get out of. Um, so the sooner you can start planting those seeds, the sooner you can start like looking at other things. I think the better for poker players, just because like basically you're planning for retirement, right? You're just planning for the, when the day inevitably comes that you're like, you know what, maybe I'd like to spend my life force doing something else. Um, you have options and opportunity. Yeah, I think it's very wise. Um, and we don't see it a lot in poker, especially that's why you see a lot of these old time poker players pass away. And then there's a GoFundMe to help support their funeral costs or what have you. And I've seen a lot of people push back against that of what do you mean there? Why, why don't they have millions of dollars that they've won playing poker and they need help with these funeral expenses? Yeah, they've won millions, but they've also lost it or made poor decisions or didn't plan properly for the future. And, um, you know, if it's the, the title of the show, Chasing Poker Greatness, to me, poker greatness is more than just the achievements of a poker tournament or a poker cash game. It's what you're doing both on and off the felt um, and who you are as a, a human being. It's easy when you're in the poker world, this firsthand of if poker becomes your identity, 
your self-worth and who you are as a person becomes tied to the outcome of poker. If you're winning, you feel like a winner. If you're losing, you feel like a loser. And so for me, the true greatness is recognizing that and finding a way to separate that. And um, I'll take a guy like Eric Seidel as a great example. Obviously great on the poker felt, um, poker hall of famer and his best career and best results have come after he was already in the poker hall of fame, continues to compete, continues to put in the work, is a humble, nice guy, um, and has a beautiful life off the felt. You know, he's married, he's got uh, children, daughters, and, and what have you. And so a guy like that, even a Phil Hellmuth, who puts a high priority on his family, um, these guys who have found a balance, who have life within poker, but life without uh, the game is, you know, outside the game as well. Um, those are the ones who I have mad respect for. And really what I'm trying to set myself up for as well is, yeah, I want to be great in poker. I am chasing poker greatness, but I also want to be happy and great in life in general. And that's not always to do easy to do and to find the blend between those two, I think is uh, certainly a challenge for a lot of poker players. Yeah. And I think poker greatness, you know, is subjective to all of us that plays poker, right? Like, and for me, there's one more component that I would, I would add. It's being good to your fellow man, like not being a terrible human being is a major part of poker greatness to me. And, um, last year I, I had Jan Fisher and Linda Johnson on the podcast and, you know, Jan Fisher was telling stories about like the poker in the late seventies, throughout the eighties, the early nineties of just the mistreatment of dealers by big poker stars of that era and how like, you know, she didn't name specific names, but she, you know, I, I asked her to just name the good guys. Right. And, and it was like a struggle. It was like, a, <laughs> like to, to name like five, you know, five to 10 off the top of her head. Like it was a struggle. And it, it just made me kind of realize that like my idea of poker greatness when I was young and coming up, you know, 21, 22 years old were the icons of poker that had tons of success throughout that era, the people that I looked up to the most. Um, and now I look back on that and I think like that that was a little bit misguided, that the, the humans that elevate the people around them that are a joy um, spending time with while you're playing poker that don't like just make other people's lives miserable. That's just a, a major part of poker greatness to me. And I think that like strong poker players ought to know better than to treat their peers, treat the dealers poorly. Um, and yeah, so anyway, that's just another thing, another aspect of it for me that genuinely matters is like, yeah, we're playing poker and I'll be the first to tell you, Chad, we sit down at a poker table. I'm going to do everything I can to slit your throat as it relates to the strategy and the competition of poker. But like, I'm not going to yell at you. I'm not going to berate you. I'm not going to call you names. You know, you'll leave the casino. And if you crush me, you crush me. Like, well done. You know, let's battle again tomorrow. But yeah, just anyway, it's a, it's a long tangent on just treating people with respect. Everybody that you encounter in the poker world, I just think they all deserve it. Um, yeah, and it's just a big part of chasing poker greatness for me. I, I I can't add any more to it. I agree with you 100% and think it's something everybody should do. And there's a lack of it sometimes in the poker world. There are 
like a like a comic book it's uh, there's your heroes and your villains in the poker world and it, we would all be better served if everyone just respected the game respected the people in it both on and off the felt and um, all right. So yeah, let's just ask a couple of lightning round questions and then we'll, sure. we'll close up shop, man. So if you could gift all poker players, one book to read, doesn't necessarily have to be about poker. What book would you gift them? Mm, I mean, uh, it'd probably be a poker book just because that's primarily what I read nowadays. Um, and it wouldn't be a strategy book because as we've talked about a lot on uh, during this interview, you know, poker strategy always changes. You remember the Dan Harrington books were great. They're no longer really applicable. I wouldn't recommend those. So I think I would choose a poker biography. Um, I think those have kind of the best lessons. And I think you would probably be um, actually maybe I, I would gift and I actually did just gift this. So I'm going to go with this. I just gifted this last month to a guy I work with. I found it at a thrift store, just couldn't let it sit there, even though I have a copy. So I gifted it to him and it was uh, Jim McManus's Positively Fifth Street. Um, arguably the best poker book ever written. Talks about his run in, I believe it was the 2001 or 2000, I think it was 2001 World Series of Poker main event. Um, he was a journalist who got an advance to write a story and used it to buy into the main event and went on to make the final table. And he intersperses it with the story of the murder of Ted Binion, the son of Benny Binion, the founder of the World Series of Poker. And so it's just, there's a lot of poker history there, but it also uh, mixes in this dream of playing the World Series of Poker main event and chasing chasing poker greatness uh, like Jim McManus did. And so um, I think every poker player should read that, especially every poker, you know, industry person reporter should it's just a it's a beautiful book nice um if you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about poker what would you change mm, i think if i could change one thing about poker, oh man that's a good question i feel like there's probably a lot of things um that i would change i think maybe i'd go back and wave the wand and and get rid of the introduction the invention of re-entries re-entry tournaments um oh matt savage matt yeah savage. and i don't hold it against him i get it uh, he's a you know he said he maybe would change that as well and it's certainly changed the industry it makes sense i get it but i do wonder what the game would have evolved into or what it would be like today if that concept concept never never actually existed um well yeah. matt don't feel too bad. You know, I think somebody else would have come up with a concept eventually. Like <laughs> eventually somebody would have realized that like, oh, we have people that are like, there's a su large supply of players that are out of the tournament that would like to continue playing. Let's make that, how do we make that happen? You know? Um, but yeah, I, I, again, like tournament poker is not um, really my space. Um, so I don't really... I understand the negative impact of re-entry tournaments, um, but I haven't researched it fully. So I don't really, my opinion is not uh, super solidified one way or the other. What, what, what are the major downsides that you see? I think that it just drains the poker ecosystems way more quickly. Um, it flushes a lot of people out of the game. And I think it overall contributed to, you know, it sped up the evolution of poker a bit, I think. 
um, because it got it uh, drained bankrolls faster to less talented players and they filtered out of the game even faster those who succeeded so just consolidated these poker ecosystems a little bit quicker in my opinion and um, you know another magic wand thing i don't think i'd actually wave this one but i i actually was wondering this about two weeks ago i had some thinking about what would poker be like if there was never um the uh industry that sprung out of the poker boom and by that i mean when the poker boom happened all of a sudden you had people rushing to release poker books to start training sites and to really start sharing the strategies and secrets of the game in this huge manner and so that's why you've seen the game evolve from you know 2000 say 2005 to today you've seen an evolution in 15 years in the game that you didn't see in the previous four decades if you ever. will and right ever, ever. Yeah. and so i wonder what life would be like um I, you know you would probably be making a lot more money i'd be making a lot more money if uh, all that information wasn't flooded out into the poker world and people were able to learn and um you know it might be one it, it's like almost like chess you know like chess is to a certain degree solved with and i'm not a chess guy but poker has become just so much more and more solved that it's harder to compete it's harder to succeed and it's probably a lot more intimidating to get new people to want to enter the game like for me like with chess like yeah i like to play chess recreationally against a family member or something but i don't know if i'd ever want to try to take chess seriously and competitively because i realize that the game is is so advanced and i'm so far from being advanced at it that it's it's intimidating and i think that might apply to to poker nowadays you know the poker boom happened because it seemed at the time like anybody could get into poker and win and succeed and had that dream and i it still exists but i think it's definitely a lot uh you know a lot more condensed if you will that not everybody thinks they can actually do it yeah i'm i i'm more optimistic than you i guess about about all of that in the strat side of the game i think that like you're playing a game against human beings and that's like the ultimate variable that's really difficult to solve for and poker is such a massively complex game when you factor in the human element that solving it is quite difficult like solving it for you know max exploit is just quite difficult and i, I think that like in some weird way solvers have made the game softer for uh, like not the elite of the elite and not like the best players, but like there are bad assumptions that you can take from using solvers. Um, if you're like using them incorrectly or using them poorly, they're like just things that you can really just believe about the game that are just fundamentally not true when you go out and start trying to apply them in practice. So, you know, I, I think that, I think the poker dream is still alive. And I think that like, the barrier to entry while is much higher than it was back in 2005 is still something that's not overwhelming. Like the, the bar, you can still clear it. You know, I, I think back to my tactical Tuesday co-host, John, um, just a year and a half ago, you know, he was a live pro and he was pretty nitty live pro, um, who had never played online poker and everyone that he played against live was basically like, you know, online pokers where the wizards and solver guys they just live and they just crush and you just it's impossible to win etc cetera, etc cetera. um 
and now, you know, a year and a half later, he's, you know, battling in like the 1K no limit streets and like winning it over eight big blinds per hundred. Um, and, you know, I'm building my stable operation. I wouldn't be building my operation if I thought the game, that it was like an insurmountable challenge to still carve out a good win rate playing poker. Um, so yeah, I think a lot of times, a lot of times humans kind of build it up, uh, succeeding at poker into some insurmountable challenge but i think it's certainly doable with everything that like i know about strategy where it's headed the tools that people are using to get there i i think it's uh still right you know it's still early on there's still lots of opportunity for folks out there i i believe yeah i don't disagree and look the poker landscape is is different you can't you can't come to the mspt a mid-stakes poker tour and uh use the gto principles that you might take into a 50k high roller right that you know you could bring it but it's probably not going to have the same success and likewise like online is a little bit of a different game than playing one two at your local casino so um, i definitely think people can still succeed at poker um i just think it uh it, it, as we've talked about you got to put in the work in this day and age yeah you do like it's going to be hard to show up for the main event never playing a live tournament before and take it down like just it's more difficult for a moneymaker-esque event to just kind of go down in this day and age but yeah i mean what's the point of life you know you, you got to work hard you got to earn it and then you move on from there and I, I think it winning becoming a winning poker player is a thing that you can still earn you know as of 113 2022 uh now 10 years from now i have no earthly idea um but as of today i think it's something that you can still do and i think live poker will just go on forever i think it, it's just yeah there, there's limited data about live poker um the fields are so big like there's such demand for it from just all around the world um and you're kind of fenced in demographically too where like your local casino um your, your local casino 510 game is probably going to be beatable and and a good game just sort of forever um so anyway, that's my my little tangent on you know the future where I think the future of poker is headed. I think it's still right. We're still growing. There's still a ton to learn, um, and yeah, excited to see what what happens next. I, I certainly hope you're right because I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to be in this industry and I want it to thrive and, and be great. And um, I'm a firm believer in the poker world that a, a rising tide raises all ships. You know, if something's good for the game overall, it's good for all of us. It's good for us from. Uh, industry side of things it's good for players it's good for operators and i love nothing more than to see the game of poker succeed um, i always try my best to help it succeed um, and it always hurts a little bit to you know have to write one of those stories that reflect badly on this game that we love because unfortunately there are you know like i said villains in this game and what have you so um, but you're right poker's not going anywhere it's been around a long time and um, it offers live poker especially an opportunity for people to uh, have scratched that competitive itch and socialize. And as long as you have those sort of things, I think there's always going to be uh, people who want to participate, me being one of them. Yeah. And as long as the dream's alive, right? Like the, the poker dream, I think that's something that like the online poker platform specifically as, you know, time passes on and the U S market opens back up. Um, 
yeah, selling the dream, right? Like the dream that you can aspire to be a professional poker player, that you can make money, that, you know, this is a game that can be beat, um, is something that just should be evangelized because it's a driving force for a lot of us. You know, I wouldn't be in poker without this idealized dream that I could have made it. Um, and for future generations that, that just is something that without it, I think poker dies. Like that, that, that would be the death of poker when people stop believing that they can learn enough, grow enough to be able to beat the game. Um, I think that that, that would just be the end of the game. Um, all right, man. Well, two questions and then we'll close, sure. close down shop. So what's a project you're working on right now that's near and dear to your heart? Um, one project that I've been working on for a long time, and I feel like I'm finally got all the pieces. I just need to put together the puzzle now is several years ago, I decided I wanted to find out what happened to 1992 World Series of Poker main event champ Hamid Dasmalchi. He's a four-time ah. bracelet winner. Four-time bracelet winner. He chain smoker. <laughs> chain smoker. Yeah, he was huge in the 90s. And basically, nobody has really heard or seen much from him since, you know, like 2004-ish. And so I kind of made it a personal challenge to set out, uh, see if I could solve that mystery. Um, interviewed a lot of folks and I did so with the intention of doing some sort of podcast audio project around it. And so that's kind of my project and goal right now is I have hours of interviews with pros who are sharing their stories about Hamid Desmalchi, really diving into who he was, what he meant to poker, and then ultimately trying to answer that question of where did he go? Where is he? Yeah, yeah. what happened? And uh, so my hope is, fingers crossed, um, that I can find the time, find the motivation to do that project in the next five or six months in time for the 2022 World Series of Poker. So um, that's my hope, that's my plan, that's my goal. Um, and man, it would feel good because I've invested a lot of time, energy, uh, and several years that I've been plugging away at this. And I think the timing is ripe to to try to get this finished and over the line. Yeah, It. Um, so my recollection of Hamid is from Michael Craig's book, uh, the professor banker suicide king. Um, he was one of the members of the corporation uh, that was battling Andy Beal um, in you know the biggest games that were ever played. So yeah, that's it, it. It was kind of mysterious, right? Like reading that name and then asking, like, where is he? You know, where where did he go? What what happened to him? Because obviously he was well respected by his peers, else he wouldn't have been chosen to represent them in that uh, prestigious format. You know. Um, yeah, it, it was fun listening, and I can't wait to share it with listeners of um, hearing the stories told by poker players about Hamid. I spoke with, you know, Ted Forrest, who uh, played Hamid heads up in that chain smoking match that has been written about. I spoke to, I spoke to a lot of people, Johnny Chan, um, you know, Phil Hamid, all the big names I had access to through the World Series of Poker. I pulled him aside and said, hey, you've got this connection to Hamid Desmolchi one way or the other. You played against him and what have you. What can you tell me about him? And do you know where he is? And it's all pretty interesting. And like I said, I can't wait to hopefully put it together as I envision it in my head and, and share it with the poker world. That's a hell of a project that I can't wait to see come to reality. Um, and final, finally, you know, if the Chasing Poker Greatness listener wants to learn more about you on the World Wide Web, where do they go? Um, I'm pretty active on Twitter at Chad A. Holloway. A is my middle initial, so at Chad A. Holloway on Twitter, and then also just on poker news. I'm always contributing articles on a daily basis. And every week, Sarah Heron and I do the poker news podcast. So I encourage you 
to check that out. And yeah, that's uh, Poker News. Like I, I think my name has become pretty synonymous with Poker News over the years. I've been there for so long and I've done so much. So definitely check that out. And uh, yeah, those are probably the two best ways to uh, keep atop of what I'm doing. Chad, it's been great having you on the show. Let's do it again in the near future. Best of luck moving forward and very much looking forward to the Hamid Dasmalchi project. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun and uh, I'm a fan, I'm a listener, and I'll continue to uh, listen to what you do. Keep up the good work. Thanks for listening to Chasing Poker Greatness. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com to get the newsletter, join the Greatness Village community, book a coaching session, or dive into the latest data-driven poker courses. Follow the show on Twitter at CPG Podcast.